All right, my mic is on, that's good. <laughs> um, have you ever done a bad thing for the right reasons? Have you ever done a bad thing for the right reasons? I knew a, a man once who's actually a little more of a, a boy. Um, but this man met a, a woman who, uh, who was married and had a kid. And this woman was in a marriage that was unhappy, one that was not going well, a husband who, young husband who was also a boy, probably. He met her, and they began a relationship because he wanted to change her life. He wanted to begin something to help her. Fortunately, before things were too late, the Lord intervened in that and kept the original couple from splitting up and having issues and kept that boy <laughs> from making a mistake that would have been incredibly painful for everybody involved. I imagine there are a lot of times in our lives where we think about moments where we actually did the wrong thing for the right reasons, right? You act out of love, but what you do is just misplaced. Today we're actually going to see a little bit of that, I think. We're in John chapter 19, and if you've been with us for any amount of time, then you know that we have been in John for like three years now, um, and we are coming into the end. We're coming into uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, and we are timed at this point still that we will read about and study the death of Jesus the week before Easter, and on Easter we will land perfectly in the resurrection. This is, has been a project Scott and I have been working on for a year to make sure we landed in the right spot. We have changed things, we have moved things around, we have combined things so that we can make that happen. And the last few weeks, we really have been looking at two main characters in the story at this point. We, we've been looking at Jesus, of course, but there's another one who really centers and lands in the passages that we've been in over and over and over again. Anybody want to take a stab at who I'm thinking of? Jesus. I already said Jesus. Pontius Pilate. I never realized how much of a role Pontius Pilate plays throughout this the, the story of Jesus' crucifixion, especially in the book of John. And what we're going to see here, I think, is, is that Pilate is fixing to do the wrong thing for the right reasons. Now, that may seem a little weird as we come into what we see here, but after studying this passage, I'm really very well, pretty well convinced of this. And that matters to us. Because one of the things that as we read this that I want us to see is that really each one of these segments that we've been studying in the book of John, they almost stand on their own as a mirror for you and I. That as we see the different things that 
each one of those in this, in this Bible story has taken place, we, we might look in the mirror and see ourselves. And I want us to do that as we look at Pilate today. So let me read our passage. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 19, like I said, verses 1 through 11. I'm just going to read this for us. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless I had been given, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater, greater sin. A mirror. I want us to look at our own lives today through the mirror of this passage. So we might look in and as we might think we're gazing upon Pontius Pilate, that we might actually be willing to gaze upon ourselves. Pontius Pilate makes a number of mistakes, I'll call them, in this passage. And friends, I think these are mistakes that we too may have a tendency to make or have made. Maybe we don't anymore, but we, we have. And, and as we, we look at this, I want us to see us. And I think that's one of the major purposes of Scripture in general, is that we would look into it and that we would see ourselves, whether we line up with it and we measure up, or whether we just simply don't, that, but we would be willing to say, man, this is, this is where, I, where I'm falling short. So what we're going to do is look at three major mistakes that Pilate makes in this passage. And my prayer, again, like I said, is that you might look in a mirror, that you might be willing to look at him and maybe look at yourself. Mistake number one is misguided attempt to save ourselves. Mistake number one is the misguided attempt at saving ourselves. Looking at verses one through six, which we just read, what we see is Pilate, who is absolutely convinced that Jesus is innocent. It says that over and over and over again in the book of John, Pilate looks at Jesus and he sees an innocent man. And then what we read in verses 1 through 6 is that Pilate takes Jesus and flogs him. Right? He, he whips him with a whip of, of leather and metal and bone and glass. And he hands him over to his soldiers who twist together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. And we know from one of the other gospels that that crown is then struck with a stick or a staff, forcing it into his skull. 
He is arrayed in a purple robe, which is just an interesting detail when you think about the deliberateness to which Pilate is acting at this point. Right? You didn't put a purple robe on a bloody man because a purple robe was a sign of wealth. In, in fact, it cost a ton of money to make a purple robe. When we think about this, just remember, Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. He knows it. He knows it incredibly well. Verse 3, it tells us that they, they come up to him proclaiming, Hail, King of the Jews, and striking him again with their hands. An innocent man. A man Pilate knows to be innocent. Verse 4, Pilate goes out again. He says to the Jewish leaders, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Friends, let me just say this one more time. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. And yet, Pilate takes it upon himself to destroy him physically and verbally. And he brings him out to the Jewish leaders, to the mob. And he says, look, here he is. I've found no guilt in him. Verse 5, it says, so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man. He's mocking him openly in front of everybody. An innocent man. Why? Why on earth would Pilate, knowing that he's innocent, go through such rigmarole, right, through such diligence to cause him to suffer, to bleed, to make him as ugly as possible, to mock him with purple robe? No. It's because Pilate's trying to save his life. And if he can bring him out in front of the Jewish leaders, humiliated, mocked, broken, beaten, and wounded, he's hoping that he'll be off the hook for what's going to happen. If, if he can just convince the Jewish leaders that Jesus has suffered enough already, then they'll let him go. Friends, the wrong thing for the right reasons? Wow. He brings him out. He says, behold the man. Now, that idea of beholding, you see that, those words in Scripture. Behold almost always refers to this just, just study and gaze upon. We're told to behold God. We're told to behold the Son. And he's calling upon them to behold this suffering man in front of them that it might just be enough. The trouble is, it's all in vain. See, no matter what Pilate did to Jesus in these moments, no matter how ugly Jesus now was, no matter how much blood is pouring off of him, no matter the wounds that are there, it is not enough for the Jewish leaders. See, this is a misguided attempt. It's all in vain. 
Now, the trouble is it's also not about Jesus. Right? Pilate's not doing this to save Jesus for Jesus' sake. He's doing this to save himself. He's already been warned by his wife to steer clear, right? He knows this guy is innocent, and he doesn't want to be involved in this, but he knows if he does the wrong thing, the Jewish leadership is going to cause a revolt, and if they cause a big enough revolt, Rome is going to take his power from him. So he does all this to Jesus in a misguided attempt to save himself. And guess what? It doesn't work, as it never works when we attempt to save ourselves. Now, most of us have probably not tortured, beaten, and mocked a man in an attempt to appease an angry mob. <laughs> most of us here. So what do we see? Well, here's a few things that I think we need to see about misguided efforts. The first thing is misguided efforts almost always have a goal that is too small. Misguided efforts have a goal that is almost too small. Pilate's goal is to save himself. And maybe in the background, he's kind of hoping to save Jesus too. He's kind of intrigued by Jesus. But he fails to see that his goal is just simply too small. We do this too. We, we set goals for our lives that are simply too small. They're goals that, that, that we could set whether we knew Jesus or not. Here's one. One I hear a lot from people. They say to me, but God just wants us all to be happy. Really? So I've read this book many a times, and I have never found the words, God just wants you to be happy. Okay? Does he want us to be happy? I mean, in a way, I'm sure he enjoys it when we are happy. He enjoys our joy. He enjoys our contentment, right? But there's a lot of times we set the goal of, of being happy, but it's just simply too small. I know lots of people who don't know Jesus at all who live very happy lives most of the time. And friends, here's what I want us to think about as Christians. If our goal could be met by people who don't know Jesus, then our goal is too small. It's misguided. See, Pilate doesn't understand the extent of the issue in this, in this situation. We see about it, and I think Pilate finally figures it out in the middle of this passage. Verse 7, they answer him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he's made himself the Son of God. Pilate maybe at this point didn't quite realize that it wasn't just about suffering, punishment, humiliation, but their only goal, the only thing that was going to appease them was his death. He set his sights too small. His goal was too small. He doesn't understand the extent of the issue in front of him. Friends, I think we do this with our sin all the time. We pretend it's smaller than it is. While the Bible says that every inclination of the human heart is only evil all the time, we have a tendency to think about our sin as errors and as mistakes which we'll come back to. I think there's a lot of times when we don't understand the magnitude of our sin. If we did, we would actually understand why Jesus is going through everything he's going through. 
But I think most of the time, the way that we talk about our sin is errors, or things that we're working on, is problems that we need to fix. We've missed the sight that God's solution to all of that is his own son suffering and dying the most horrible death we can imagine. Because we set our sights too small. Our goal is too small. We want to be happy, content people, not sinless people. We've talked about this before. So it causes us to, to feed that sin in our lives. Right? We baby it. We nurse it. We, we, we bring it out. When what the Bible tells us to do is that we need to put it to death. Our goal is too small. Because of that, we do not understand the extent of the issue. The third thing that a misguided attempt does or has is that it does no good. It's misguided. It was the wrong target, the wrong size target, everything else. So Pilate does this terrible thing. He causes the immense suffering of Jesus Christ, but it does no good. Friends, let me ask you again. Have you ever done the wrong thing for the right reasons and then had those right reasons not work? Right? We give in to this. We do this thing that's awful for the right reasons, but then we get to the right reasons and they don't come about. They don't happen. And now what have we done? We've made it all worse. Have you ever made your problems go worse by your solutions to the problems? The starving father robs and steals to feed his family, gets caught, and now his family has no bread and no dad. Right? When we do the wrong things for the right reasons, it does not work out. Friends, what does this look like for us? When we think about doing misguided attempts, we're looking at that mirror. We do so every time that we attempt to save ourselves. For some of us, before we became Christians, or maybe even you sitting in this room right now, have thought, you know, the easier option to not feeling guilt and shame is to just deny that God exists. Right? Well, I, when I think about God, I know he has certain standards, he has certain things he wants me to do, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take God and I'm going to throw God away because that solves all my problems. We create our own moralities rather than seeking God's way, Right? Another thing we do, and this is a church thing, by the way, we create God in our own image. We say, all right, I believe in a God. I can't deny that there's a God. I've seen God work in power and might, so I can't deny him. I can't throw God out, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to make God look as much like me as I can. The things that I love, God loves. The thing God hates, I hate, or I hate, God hates, right? We, we make God in our own image rather than taking the image he's given us and seeing him for who the Bible teaches God to be. Another thing we might try to do is to earn our own salvation. Right? We say, all right, I know God wants me to do this, this, and this. So what do we do? We do this, this, and this. All right, that works really great when we're doing really well. But what happens when we stop doing really well? Now all of a sudden things are getting compounded. Right? We said, right, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and I'm going to be okay. Suddenly we're not doing this, this, and this. And so what does that leave us? It leaves us all the more guilt and all the more shame. 
For some of us, we try to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. You ever heard that phrase? Friends, if God wanted us to lift us up by our bootstraps, he would have given us bootstraps. But I don't know about you, I was not born with bootstraps. I came into this world naked, I will leave this world naked, and boots have nothing to do with it. Man, we are a people who try, who want to make it happen on our own. Now, the funny thing about this phrase is that I don't think I've ever owned a pair of boots that has bootstraps on it. Friends, it is misguided. Every attempt that we make to save ourselves, to rescue ourselves, to fix ourselves, why? Because the problem is bigger than we think it is. Even for those of us who, who see the problem in our lives, the sin that we have, the separation from God, as being a terrible, tragic, impossible thing, we still see it smaller than God sees it. Because we still wonder why Jesus had to die. We still wonder why he had to suffer. Friends, if we knew how big of a problem we had, we would never wonder that. We would just know it. Pilate's first major mistake is being stuck in a misguided attempt to save himself. Friends, don't be like Pilate. What's the second mistake? Pilate's second mistake is acting out of fear. His second mistake is acting out of fear. Look at verses um, 8 and 9. It says, when Pilate heard this statement, this statement being the one that they're only going to accept his death and nothing more, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Right, so Pilate has this sudden realization that his attempts thus far have been misguided. He's now caused the suffering of someone he believes to be innocent. And he gets afraid. And so he goes to Jesus and he asks him a question. Pause there. Friends, fear is normal. Fear is something every one of us experiences. And I would venture to guess every one of us experiences fear in some way every single day. I know as a, as a parent, there has not been a day that some moment of fear or anxiety or worry has not crossed into my heart and into my mind. As the pastor of a church, the same thing is true. There is not a day that goes by that I don't have a moment of fear, worry, anxiety about one of you, the sheep that God has entrusted to me and told me I'm responsible for. Just think about that for a minute before when you're doing what you're doing, sheep. What you do causes me anxiety. Okay? It's sort of joking, but it's, Betsy knows it's not. Okay? Fear is normal. And Pilate here is a man who is afraid, and we see this all throughout John's gospel at this point. He is afraid. He is afraid of getting involved with Jesus in his trial because his wife has already had a dream warning the two of them to stay clear of this whole situation. And he believes in the power of dreams. He is afraid of the Jewish leaders rioting and making him look bad. He is afraid to be seen as weak on crime against Rome because he could lose his position of power and authority. 
And here's the thing, friends. His fear is fully justified. Everything Pilate is afraid of here is real and true. And let me just say, everything you are afraid of and I am afraid of in this world probably has a good basis. The things we feel over world situations right now with Ukraine and Russia, the things we fear when we lose our jobs and, and worry about where the money is going to come from to feed our families, these things are real. Pilate's mistake, though, is that he acts out of that fear. It causes everything else that happens here, and it causes him to do an atrocity, to commit atrocity against the creator of everything. Pilate is trapped in his fear. Okay, once he gets on the road of fear, he can't get off. And I think you and I may experience that at various times in our lives. We enter into that, into that fear of what happens. Fear breeds fear breeds fear. Um, I always called this anxiety spiral. You guys, some of you have heard me talk about that before. A few years ago, I was in this crazy anxiety spiral because I totally forgot that God was actually in charge of everything in my life and in this church. Fear breeds fear. It spirals into more fear, and, and it just grows. But here's the thing, friends. Pilate has every opportunity in this story, in, this, in history, to act faithfully. But he never goes there. He has every opportunity to put fear behind him. He has met Jesus face to face. How many of us in our lives have said to someone, man, if Jesus was just here face to face, I'd be all set. Well, here's Jesus face to face with Pilate. Pilate is discovering who he is and what he's all about. And it does not cause him to live faithfully. He is absolutely convinced that Jesus is innocent. Doesn't change his behavior. His wife, likely his better half, has instructed him to have no part in these things. Men, we know it's wise to listen to our wives. He has every reason to do what he's supposed to do here, to, to act right and not in fear. I mean, add all that to the fact that he is literally the most powerful person in the land. But none of that matters because fear has taken over his life. How many of you, when you think about your lives, just know that there are times, maybe even right now, where fear has taken over? Fear about what's next, fear about what's coming. The trouble with fear is that it often causes us to do terrible things. It causes us to do hard things. It causes us to do things we wouldn't otherwise normally do. It causes us to keep from doing good things. This is the mirror. How many of us, when we first came to Christ, came to Christ to avoid hell? Out of a fear of hell. Big pause. Do you know why we should love Christ? Why we should follow Christ? Because he's absolutely worth following. Because he's absolutely lovely in every way. He is absolutely beautiful in every way. Now, many of us, most of us, I even guess myself way back when, came to Christ out of fear, this, this idea, and that's not uncommon. What shouldn't ever be is it stays that way all the way through your Christian life. 
Friends, we may come to faith in fear of hell, fear of eternity, fear of the unknown, but what should happen is that fear of all that should cause us to see how amazing Christ is and fall in love with him. That is the motivation for being a Christian for the next 60 years, or 80 years, or 10 years, or one year until you die. When we make decisions out of fear, fear takes over. And if in faith we never let that fear become love for Christ, then we're missing out. We are. Then we're missing out. We're making the same mistake that Pilate makes. We're just continuing on that fear. Parents, do you homeschool because you're fearful of what will happen to your kids? Or... Do you send your kids to school to be taught by others because you're afraid of what it will do to your time? Or do you believe that your choice in this is the best thing for them in the kingdom? Here's the beautiful thing. There are lots of faithful options. One family might choose one thing. One family might choose another thing. Both might be acting out of fear. On the other hand, both might be living in faith. Why do you do what you do? Spouses, do you stay faithful because you're afraid of what will happen otherwise? Or do you stay faithful because you love your spouse? Do you serve your spouse to avoid conflict because you're afraid of the fights that will come if you don't do stuff for them? Or do you serve them because you know that that's how Christ loved the church and that we are meant to serve one another? Do you reach out to your neighbors and connect with them so you will be well thought of? Are you afraid of what you might be thought of by other Christians who know you're not doing so? Or if you're doing so, so that you will be thought of well? Or is it because you love your neighbor and want to see them love Jesus how you do? See, we can be a people even of faith, people of faith who live in fear and make all kinds of choices in fear when what we are called to do is be people of faith, making decisions in faith for love, right? Now we can fear many things. We can fear how we're thought of. We can fear what we will have or what we won't have. We can fear what we will do or need to do. Friends, when I think about fear, I think fear is one of the most common things I hear about in the church. Some of us need to memorize 2 Timothy 1.7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Christian, God has put a spirit in you, and it is not a spirit of fear. It is a spirit of power and love and self-control. Do you know how many times the Bible tells us to fear not? I love this. 365 times. The Bible tells us to not fear one day for every day of the year. Now, I didn't count that. Somebody else did. If I'm wrong, it's not my fault. Okay, it sounds really cool though, doesn't it? Why does the Bible tell us to not fear once for every day of every year. 
because the Bible and its author knows that we can be a really fearful people. Friends, we may need to sit down and we may need to really examine our hearts and examine our lives. The question comes, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I not doing what I'm doing? Are we acting and living in fear or in faith in everything that we do, whether it's raising our kids or being married or the job that we're working or anything else? Because he has not put a spirit of fear in us, but one of power and love and self-control. Amen? Don't be like Pilate. Act in faith, not fear. All right, the third mistake that Pilate makes is thinking he's in charge. The third mistake that Pilate makes is thinking he is in charge. And church, I just want you to know that when I'm looking in a mirror, I think this is the one where I see myself the most. Pilate's used to being in charge. He's used to getting his own way, and so he's convinced that he is in charge. So much so that in verses 10 and 11, he turns to the creator of the universe and says, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answers him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate is convinced that he has all the power here. And you think about it, he has already tortured Jesus, beaten him, mocked him, and in his opinion, his entire life is in his hands. We usually think of authority as the one who is in charge of a situation, the one who will get their way. But more fully, when we begin exploring this word in Greek, it really attaches to the idea of, of the power of choice and the liberty to do what one wants. And in our passage here, this gets really ironic. For Pilate, who is unbound by chains, is bound by what? Fear. And seems to have little to no choice of what he's going to do. He's stuck. But Christ, who is in fact bound in chains, has every power to choose what he does and in fact is at full liberty to do exactly what he wants to do. Pilate's mistake is one that everyone in this world makes at one point or another. Friends, it is the reason that you get mad. It's the reason you get mad. It's the reason you get mad at your spouse. It's the reason you get mad at your kids. It's the reason you get mad at the world because they're not doing what you want to do. It's the reason some of us are still mad at God because he's not doing what we want him to do. It's the reason that we get crushed when others hurt us. It's the reason we spend so much time frustrated with our situations in life. It's also the reason why fear is inevitable. Because we are all the people who think, who would like to think that we are in charge of our situation, that we are in control. Trouble is, if 
we suddenly have that realization that we're not, it causes tremendous upheaval in our lives. Whether that's a diagnosis that just knocks us off our feet, off our feet, right? Or whether that's a situation with work that we cannot control, we have those moments, all of us do, where, where we thought we were in control of this and then suddenly we're not. And here's Pilate standing before Jesus, assuming he has all the authority, he has all the power in the situation, when in reality he is talking to the king of the universe, the one who holds all things together by the word of his power, Hebrews 1, for whom all things were made, Colossians 1. Of the two of them, one of them is absolutely enslaved and one of them is absolutely free. Romans 6, 17 through 18 tells us, this is Paul writing, he says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Jesus is, is never, has never needed to be set free. He has always been free. But Pilate, we know, he is a man who is stuck in his sin. He is a slave to his sin. He's a slave to his fear. He is a slave stuck. Church, so often the world will look at us, will look at you, will look at me. They will say this to me. They will say this to you. They'll say, hey, look, because you follow God, he has ruined your fun. He has enslaved you to prudence. He has taken away the pleasure of life, right? It's no fun to be a Christian. Has anybody ever been told that, basically, by someone? You know what that's like? That is like an eagle in a cage at the zoo, getting fed day after day all the fish that it could ever want to eat. Meanwhile, looking out at the eagle soaring free and thinking, I've got a better life than him. That's what it's like. See, the Christian has been set free from being a slave to sin, all of their actions being controlled by that relationship, to one of freedom. And yes, there are those days when we decide to live as our old person or old man or woman, and we live like we are still enslaved because we did it for so long. But here's the difference. Once we've been set free, we can choose life. We can choose not sin. We can choose righteousness. There is a freedom that happens here, and that freedom flows from Christ, who's standing next to Pilate, getting told by Pilate that he's the one in charge. But Christian, if, if you are a Christian, then, then you have been set free. You've been set free by the one who is actually in authority, by the one who is actually in charge, by the one who's actually deciding the future of the universe, the future of, of everything. Don't be like Pilate. Don't be like Pilate. Know that Christ is in charge. Let me just say one more thing on that, because if Christ is in charge, if Christ is in charge, then he is able to call you to live a different life than you were living before. He is able to transform you, okay? He can call you out of fear. 
He can call you out of every misguided attempt at your own salvation. He can call you out of all that if he's in charge. Of course, we need to place him in charge of our lives. Friends, we've looked today so far at three major mistakes that Pilate has made, right? The misguided attempt to save himself, the acting out of fear, and the thinking that he is in charge. Three major mistakes that if we're willing to look in the mirror, I think we too will see at various times, maybe even right now. These mistakes. But I don't want to sugarcoat this. I've been using the word mistakes this whole time because that's what we do. But I want us to pause really quick and think about the mistakes that Pilate's making. Because what happens because of these mistakes? He leads, these mistakes lead to the intentional suffering of Christ our Creator. These mistakes lead to the humiliation and mocking of the King of Kings. These mistakes lead to the death of the author of life. These mistakes lead to the perceived stealing of authority of the Sovereign One. As if someone could steal Christ's authority. So friends, let me just say this, not mistakes, but sin. You may make these mistakes, but know this, they're not mistakes. They're sin. And no less sin than Pilate. No less sin than Pilate. So friends, if we too are guilty of these same, same things... And I saw some heads nodding while we were talking about them being mistakes. I hope you're still willing to say, yeah, I'm still guilty while they're sins. Friends, what's our hope? What is our hope? Well, here's the hope. Not only is this picture a mirror of our lives that we're given in John through each one of these little bits as we lead up to the crucifixion, but they are also a full picture of the gospel of Christ. While Pilate is working his misguided attempt at salvation, Jesus is suffering for the ones he loves. Suffering so that we will be saved. In church, there's nothing misguided about that. While Pilate is acting out of fear, Jesus is acting in perfect love. Perfect love for the Father above who he's being obedient to. And yes, perfect love for you and for I, for his people. Perfect love that is willing to do anything and everything for the one that he loves. While Pilate thinks he is in charge, Jesus is following through on the Father's perfect plan. Church, we may find ourselves in moments where we have looking in the mirror, realize that we have drastically fallen short. But what we need to see is that even while we are falling short, Jesus is not. He is not. And he is the one that gives us the hope of life, of resurrection, of salvation forever. Amen? Amen. Church, if you have never given your life to Jesus, if you have never called out to him, and asked him to rescue you, declared that you are a sinner, then today is the day to do so. And I pray that today would be. And I want to invite you to consider that as we come into the time of communion. For the time of communion is a time for those of us who have been 
part of the kingdom of God, who have been part of the family of God, who have already accepted Christ to remember what he's done. For anybody here who has not done so, this is a perfect time to sit and think and say, I, I need this, I need Christ, and I want Christ. So let me pray as we come into the time of the Lord's Supper, and then we'll, we'll, we'll do the Lord's Supper together. But again, if you are someone who's never made that decision, let this be a time where you pray, seeking the Lord and asking him to rescue you. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for the mirror of scripture that shows us who we are, that shows us our hearts and our minds. And God, I pray that as we would look at this picture of Pilate, Lord, that we would see in ourselves the areas that we are just like him, misguided, living in fear and thinking that we're the ones in control and in charge of everything. And I pray, Lord, that we would turn to you, the one who actually does save and the one who actually lives and acts out in faith and the one who, God, the one who rescues us. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you. And I pray that in this time you would lead us deeper into your presence, into who you are, to know you all the more. Amen. Church, we come to the Lord's Supper, and here at Calvary, this is uh, something we do.